And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, a production of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. I am J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. Here on this show, I talk about Marvel Comics' blind lawyer by day, superhero by night, Daredevil. And the premise of the show is simple. I read Daredevil Comics, I enjoy Daredevil Comics, and I talk about reading and enjoying Daredevil Comics. And I'm doing it with no notes, no prepared synopsis, nothing in front of me but the book and my phone for necessary research as we go. And frankly, I have very little to nothing for preamble. So if you recall last time, while Matt Murdock was doing a speaking gig at a parochial school, a young girl named Mary Elizabeth O'Corin basically overdosed on angel dust and threw herself out a window to her death. Her brother Billy swore revenge. Poor little lad ended up getting framed when he was caught with a smoking gun when one of the drug dealers in the neighborhood, a man named Flapper, was shot dead. Matt took on Billy's case investigating with the Punisher really playing a lot of interference finding that the criminal known as Hogman was the head of the drug dealing operation and the most likely suspect to kill Flapper. But when Hogman was put on the stand, he said he didn't do it and his heartbeat didn't jump, meaning he was telling the truth. So Matt took on his case, which put him in the crosshairs of the Punisher. That is what we're picking up with Daredevil number 184, the July 1982 issue. The cover by Frank Miller and Klaus Jansen has a yellow background and Daredevil is large and in charge with a freaking magnum pointed at the reader. And this is a huge close up. The cover text says, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And this is a straight up lift from a Dirty Harry poster. I mean, it stops shy by making it look like the glass of the poster case is shattered by the impact of the gun, but it's pretty much Dirty Harry and Daredevil is right in our faces. In terms of composition, this is a fine cover. There's a lot of detail to the gun, to Daredevil's furrowed brow and his curled lips and his clenched teeth. But what stands out to me the most is the big yellow background. I mean, it's hard to miss. It's straight up canary yellow. And the irony of this is that, of course, yellow is associated with being the color of fear. And of course, Daredevil being the man without fear, this feels kind of contradictory in a good way. It tells us that the fear has led Daredevil to gripping this gun and confronting something with the last resort weapon that he could come up with. His fists and billy club just weren't cutting it here. So it does sell a bit of tension. Does that tension play out? Well, that's what we're going to find out when we look at the story here, which is Good Guys Wear Red, written and penciled by Frank Miller with inks and colors by Klaus Janssen and letters by Joseph Rosen. Much like the previous issue, the reprints are as follows. Daredevil Punisher Child's Play number one, which collects this in the previous issue. Punisher versus Daredevil number one. Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 3 and the Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus Hardcover. Digitally, this is available through Comixology, or if you want to go the easy route, this issue is also available on Marvel Digital Unlimited. Let's dive into this issue here. We begin with Hogman eating at a restaurant, basically bragging about how this hotshot lawyer is going to get him off of this murder charge. He has no idea he is in the crosshairs of the Punisher. Luckily, Daredevil comes in, confronts the Punisher. They do a little fighty McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, and the Punisher knocks a chimney over on Daredevil and gets away once again. Meanwhile, at Glenn Industries, Heather Glenn is basically signing paper after paper after paper, 
Going through this paperwork, she finds something called Atreus Plastic, which the representative of the board of directors says, oh, it's nothing, just a small company, but it's going to be important next issue, so let's earmark it now. Meanwhile, Hogman's trial progresses with Matt representing him. Matt makes a bold accusation that there's somebody who's actually responsible for the murder who is masquerading as a upstanding member of the community. And suddenly, Coach Donahue looks a little alarmed. He tells Billy to shrug it off, but we kind of know what's going on, don't we? Matt is waiting around the office later for that upstanding member of society, who we know is Coach Donahue, to call him when Heather tries to call and talk out what's going on with her company, but really between her and Matt as well. Matt's more obsessed with the call that he's expecting and kind of blows Heather off. Matt puts her on hold while he takes a call from Coach Donahue, setting up a meeting at the school later. And when he comes back, Heather's already gone. When Matt goes to the school to meet the coach, the coach basically is high as can be on angel dust. Somebody has given it to him and he's putting up a pretty good fight, to be honest with you. Matt's able to quell the fight by putting the coach into a submission hold and putting that to a rest. Meanwhile, Hogman and his associates go to Marky, who was the junkie that fingered him last issue. Remember the guy that Punisher almost beat to death? And Marky needs a fix and apologizes, so the fixer gives him a fix. It just happens to be complete and pure, and it kills Marky right there on the spot. Earmark this, that it's Marky the Hogman, and his associate in this stairwell. With Marky dead, the case is basically withdrawn against Hogman, so he gets off scot-free. Confirming that he is indeed under the protection of double jeopardy, so he can't be tried for this again, he tells Matt the honest truth. He is guilty as sin. And right in front of Billy, who's still pissed off about his sister being killed, he puts some money in Matt's pocket and walks away. But later that night, Daredevil catches up with Hogman and realizes that Hogman has a pacemaker, so he was able to deceive Daredevil's lie detector hearing. And suddenly things really heat up as Hogman gets a call that Billy witnessed him killing Marky in the hallway, so he goes to meet the kid, planning on killing him. Daredevil discovers that Billy's missing and realizes he's going after Hogman, putting everything together. In the meeting, Billy has a gun pointed at Hogman, ready to do the deed, except Punisher does it for him. And of course, Daredevil arrives, he and the Punisher do what the good lord intended and fight it up, and the fight comes to a stalemate of sorts. Daredevil and the Punisher both have guns pointed at one another, and Daredevil wins by pulling the trigger first, injuring the Punisher, but far from killing him. And it's just a matter of talking Billy down from the ledge, talking him out of killing Hogman, who may or may not deserve his death, but Billy doesn't deserve the conviction, and Billy is asked to believe in the system, which ends up working because Hogman goes to jail. Matt gives Billy a little speech on rules, how sometimes they don't always work, but most of the time they do, and they're there to keep us from going crazy. And Billy takes his leave of Matt Murdock, not entirely entrusting the system that Matt Murdock supports. And we have one final scene in which Heather Glenn goes down to the main computers of her company, looks up Atreus Plastic, and finds out that, holy moly, they're making explosives, and we don't know why. And that is where Daredevil number 184 ends, but we have only just started. I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and I'll be back just after this. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue, in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. 
and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? Welcome back. To begin our discussion here, we start with the very first page, which once again uses Miller's patented long horizontal panels. The first shot we get is not of an eyeball like last issue, but the very tight shot of Hogman's mouth as he's spooning food into it. It speaks to the excess that that man lives with, that he can be perfectly fine sitting down having a large meal while his world is seemingly from the outside coming apart. More confusing to me is last issue Hogman had really wavy hair and a slightly different body type. Now he looks very much straight haired, less Greek and more Italian. In fact, it's probably because he's eating Italian. Maybe he makes it up as he goes along. I don't know. Kind of want to see what he'd wear to like KFC. He'll come in looking like the Colonel. But to speak even more to that, we have Hogman being in the crosshairs of the Punisher completely unaware, which is kind of indicative of where the character is. He has no idea how much of this is going to fall apart as it goes forward. In his egotistical, twisted mind, he's basically already beaten the murder rap. And this leads directly to another confrontation with Daredevil and the Punisher because Hogman is under Daredevil's protection. There's a great two-page splash along the top half of these two pages with Daredevil somersaulting in and then slamming right into the abdomen of the Punisher. Miller uses the effect of lighter colored Daredevils coming in and then solid Daredevil at the impact. And I love this shot, especially the Zipatone background. I love the idea of using Zipatone. There's something that's lost with digital coloring. Don't get me wrong. We gain a lot with the technology of art today, but there's something charming about just a simple piece of paper cut out to make texture. And even though Daredevil got the drop on the Punisher, the Punisher still comes out prevalent on this because he shoots the heck out of a chimney which comes down on top of Daredevil. Which is funny because Daredevil having his radar sense should give him a little bit of a tactical advantage because he's completely aware of the environment around him. But it's the Punisher who best uses the environment to make his getaway. And the Punisher is basically stating Hogman is a killer, he pushes drugs on children, he deserves to die. And definitely Hogman deserves some sort of punishment. But who am I, for example, to decide who lives or dies? I'm always reminded of Gandalf's little bit to Frodo saying, "Can you can take life, can you give the people who have died life back? And I'm paraphrasing at best, but the concept is, yes, it's easy to kill someone. You can't bring them back when you do it, though. And that's kind of where Daredevil lives, is he knows that if he ever crosses that line, there would be no going back. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. And forever he'll have blood on his hands. And that's not something Matt can live with, with the way his brain works, the way he idealizes the people around him, the way he idealizes the system. And speaking of the system, as Punisher gets away, Daredevil's thinking to himself that he is defending Hogman, and Hogman's telling the truth, and there's just this moment of doubt where he says, I hope. And that's kind of where Daredevil's making a leap of faith by representing him. The evidence is most certainly against him, and let's be honest, it was evidence that Daredevil himself collected daredevil slash matt put hogman in the position to be accused and tried of murder and now he's trying to undo that which once again speaks to the permanence of punisher's actions and the retractability of daredevils that there's a malleability to vigilantism where the person is still alive they can be exonerated they can be put back into their lives and then we have a scene in which Heather is signing a lot of release and work orders. It's not very interesting stuff that she's doing. And what stands out to me is a single panel in which there is no real background, but there is a framework of a window. So one rectangle panel and multiple small rectangle panels that lead out to New York. Other than that, there's just a desk and Heather and the representative of the board of directors. So everything inside the office is without form. Everything outside the office, the city itself, New York, 
is very detailed and very vibrant, but very much cut off from where Heather is because that's kind of what an office job is. It's claustrophobic in an emotional scale. It is very dull and very constrictive. And I can tell you that because I do work in an office. Compare that to Matt in his daredevil who's bounding across rooftops. This world outside is his oyster, man. He's He's got a big playground and he can swing, leap, somersault, whatever he wants on this thing. But Heather's trapped inside the dull, mundane, adult life of a corporate head. The board of directors representative is about as creepy as it comes. And he's trying to gaslight her is what he's doing. And unfortunately, Matt's kind of contributing to that. Not directly and not intentionally, but he is contributing to the idea that Heather maybe shouldn't be in charge of the company her dad started. You're just a girl with no experience, Heather. And the funny thing is, in the long run, maybe both of these people will end up being right as this ends up affecting Heather in a way that's kind of unexpected and unfortunate at the same time. And the key to that is Atreus Plastic. And the term Atreus comes from Greek mythology. He is the father of Agamemnon and a king of Mycenae. Atreus being the father of Agamemnon is a prelude to the Trojan War, but not a direct causation. And yes, the Atreus Plastic, as you probably guessed by the ending, is an explosives company that's going to come into sharp focus next episode. So let's put Put that to the side for just a moment and move on with Hogman's trial. Matt does this Hail Mary bold move in court by saying not only did Hogman not do it, he knows who did, or at least has the concept of who did, and it's this upstanding member of society. Furthermore, Matt drops the gauntlet that this person will be contacting him in the next 24 hours. And of course, Coach Donahue does, and Coach Donahue's in court, and he has this shocking oh crap moment. So Matt is playing this really great Mission Impossible mind game to bring out the real killer, Coach Donahue. But what Matt doesn't realize is that Donahue wasn't the killer, however he was pushing drugs on the kids. And this leads to Matt waiting by the phone for Donahue's call. And that in turn leads to the conversation with Heather, where she's trying to reach out to Matt... The man who wants to marry her, the man who she loves, the man that's supposed to love her. She's asking for help because there's so much going on. She's inherited her father's company, and her father died as a result of Daredevil. Not directly, but Daredevil was involved with leading to Mr. Glenn's murder. Not pushing him there, but just all of the stuff that surrounded him. So those circumstances led to Heather inheriting the company in the first place. And being the head of a company like that's not an easy task. To try to live up to your father's legacy is also not an easy task. There's a lot on Heather's plate, and Matt just does not give a shit. Matt is being very self-centered to some extent. Now, of course, he is working for the better good. He's working to try to make sure the truth comes out that a potentially innocent man doesn't go to jail for a crime he didn't commit. It's all very altruistic, but it also says, Heather, everything I'm doing is more important than what's going on with you and what's going on with us. And I think the art sells this on such a grand level that it's kind of mind-blowing. There's a page in which they're having this conversation. Matt's column is on the left, going down. Heather's column is on the right, also going down. And between these two columns of panels is this curly phone cord that keeps wrapping its way down, that there is a division between these two people that should be coming together. And the color on this page is extremely vibrant. Matt on the left is, he's in icy blues, as he normally would be with a orange background, feeling warm, feeling the fires of what's going on with him. I guess it's a speaking to his passion to some extent of what he's doing. It also speaks to me that it would be self-absorption. Heather's on the right and her background is very murky. She, however, is very purple, which to me kind of speaks to her femininity and the fact that she is a woman in a position where she is in control, but it's very overwhelming. There's a lot going on with her. And because of all that momentum, mentally, emotionally, that's where the purple comes from, that it's such a passionate color in and of itself. And that's within Heather. 
Matt's icy blue, and his background is vibrant. Heather's background is murky, and she's vibrant. And these two just aren't connecting. They're on two different wavelengths. So by the time Matt's done with his short conversation with Coach Donahue, in which he does not accuse him of being a murderer, but he does set up a meeting, which is probably a bad idea, but more on that in a second, Heather's gone. The handset from the payphone is just hanging there. And it's been hanging there for three out of four panels on her side of the equation, which tells me she didn't even think enough to hang the handset back on the cradle. The channel is open, but nobody is there. And that's a perfect metaphor for where these people are. Look, I'm on record for not liking Heather, and I don't. However, she does need Matt at this time, and Matt is somebody who said, I'm going to be there for you. When you propose marriage, the concept of marriage is, I'm going to be with you forever. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. I know it's sometimes not realistic, but there's a certain commitment to the relationship, and Matt is once again not living up to his commitment to his friendships or his romantic relationships. It's the same thing that ruined his relationship with Karen, that he told her, I will quit being Daredevil now that you know I'm Daredevil and we'll be together, yet he didn't. He did not follow through and he was not there for Karen in the way that he should have been. That drove a huge wedge between the two of them in which Karen left. She hasn't been around for years at this point. She's a non-entity as far as Daredevil is concerned. Now, she's going to come back in a big way, but she left as a result of that wedge. Heather is going to do the same thing, right? Both of these women are driven to go places that they wouldn't have if Matt Murdock was not part of their life. And I don't want that to be misconstrued as me saying Matt Murdock is a toxic personality. He's really not. He's just misguided and has issues prioritizing. And sometimes, and pardon this particular metaphor, he doesn't see the forest for the trees. The reason he's not toxic is, you know, as I say, he's a self-absorbed. That's not entirely true. He's absorbed into an altruistic cause. There's a certain level of sacrifice that Matt's willing to do for himself to be Daredevil, to bring good things to good people and protect them from the bad people. There's a certain self-sacrificing quality to Matt in being Daredevil that he will allow himself to be punished to protect the innocent or the greater good from the evils of the world. And Matt is an adult and he's allowed to make that decision for himself. However, he's not allowed to make that decision for the people around him. And if Matt's guilty of anything, it's taking for granted that he can full throttle make this kind of decision without considering the effects of what that would do to Foggy or Heather or Becky, the office clerk. He sometimes doesn't think of the echo effects of his particular decisions and the way that can affect the people around him, which is very different from being a toxic person. With being a toxic person, it's very much, yes, I know this will hurt somebody. I don't care. It it benefits me. It makes my life better and I'm happier. Consequences be damned, I'm going to do it because it makes me happy, it makes me fulfilled. Matt isn't entirely fulfilled by being Daredevil. He just feels that his being Daredevil benefits those around him than him not being Daredevil. He's making decisions based on the altruism in his heart and the idealism that he holds people in, but he's not thinking through the effects, essentially. And speaking of said decisions, Matt goes to the school alone to meet Coach Donahue, who is a potential killer and an admitted drug peddler to children. You know Matt Murdock is Daredevil. I know Matt Murdock is Daredevil. We know he's capable. The rest of the world does not. So if I'm a potential killer about to be fingered by a blind guy, I'm going to attract him to a place where I can take advantage of that and perhaps persuade him, you know, to not do anything. Let's not say anything about this. Let's keep it between us. Which is to say it feels like Matt would be walking into an obvious trap. The portion of this trap that isn't obvious is it's not actually a trap. 
not set by Donahue, at least. It's kind of an accidental trap. A trap after the fact, I'm not sure how to categorize it. But out of nowhere, Coach Donahue does an incredible Hulk, and he really does a Hulk. I mean, he's looking huge. Last issue, he was walking with a cane. Let's remember that. Now he's shirtless, he's muscle-bound, he's actually disproportionate, which is not an effect of PCP, by the way, or any other drugs beyond steroids, and that would happen over time. To cap that off, he's wearing the purple pants, you know, the Incredible Hulk's trademark. But he hasn't forgotten to keep his whistle around his neck, because that's how you know he's a gym coach. They always have the whistle. At first, Matt thinks, oh, okay, the coach uses drugs, okay, and realizes, no, this is not right. Using his deductive reasoning, Matt puts together that the coach is going to need his wits right now more than ever. He wouldn't do this to himself, so the answer is somebody did it to him. Which, I mean, it can strike me wrong depending on what mood I'm in when I'm reading that, but the idea that he's using that deductive reasoning is quite comforting, that Daredevil's doing a little bit of detective work with his noggin. Add to that, this scene being well-written also includes the idea that Daredevil realizes, okay, Coach is too strong. I'm not going to beat him by brute strength. Because no matter how strong a person is or how out of touch with reality, pressure points are still going to be effective. And a person still needs to breathe. There's no exceptions to the breathing rule, by the way. So Matt uses that to his advantage and takes the coach down and subdues him and then calls the ambulance. And the pages are once again full of vibrant color. For the coach, it's like a volcanic red and orange color. Because he's full of rage, he's out of control, it's so evocative of where the coach is with this whack attack, as they call it. And this is cast against a pitch darkness. Now, likewise, going to the next scene, we have Hogman giving Marky the heroin, I'm assuming, which ends up killing Marky. Now, again, the scene is done in sort of a dark background with the shadow of a stairwell, but the characters are done in this really bright yellow. And this removes some semblance of humanity from these people. It basically puts up a protective barrier is what it does, so we don't deal with what's actually happening here, which is a man ODing because Hogman filled the syringe with pure, uncut heroin or PCP. And we're talking about he ODs within seconds. But most of the overdose is done off-panel, but still, a kid could pick up this book, and this is a pretty hardcore scene. So it does put an extra layer of protection for those that would stumble into this unaware. That takes us to probably the best single scene in this entire issue, in which Hogman is acquitted, and he straight up tells Matt, I'm guilty as sin. There's a pair of panels I want to call your attention to. One is the moment when Hogman actually says I'm guilty, which is this mixture of colors, very volcanic red and orange with the cool blue that we've seen earlier. Because he is a man who is cold-hearted. He is unrepentant. He is actually glad he got away with this. And he doesn't care who knows. He's going to tell his lawyer, hey, you got me off. I'm guilty. The next panel is Matt, and it's like a stark yellow. And Matt's face is, it's, it's like you got stabbed in the heart. For Matt to be responsible for this, to have completely miscalculated this badly, is devastating. I've spoken before that Matt is a person who works off of faith. Both his, his own religious faith, but his also faith in the system that the guilty are punished and the innocent are protected. And that element is something Matt holds very, very dear. By having defended Hogman, by having caused Hogman to get away with murder, literally, Matt is now in violation of that system and that faith. This is like committing a cardinal sin for Matt. And just to stab that knife in and twist it, Billy sees Hogman put the money in his pocket. And Hogman putting that money in his pocket is just like Judas getting his 30 pieces of silver. Matt has become his own Judas by letting Hogman go free. He's not done this intentionally, 
but he's betrayed himself, he's betrayed the system, and he's betrayed Billy's trust, and Billy knows it. Unlike what happened with Heather in that conversation, Matt's completely aware that his decision has affected things in the exact opposite manner that he attended. The thing is, Matt's senses are lying to him, right? He, they have to be. His heartbeat didn't jump. He has to be innocent. He has to be telling the truth. How does this work? And Matt finds out that Hogman has a pacemaker. The human lie detector was deceived by technology. And the irony is probably not missed on Matt. So Matt has basically got blood on his hands right in front of Billy. I mean, he's got Billy's sister's blood on his hands, metaphorically speaking. He's let this killer get away. Let's also talk about Billy here. Let's talk about what's been happening to Billy throughout this, because I've kind of neglected that, to be honest with you. Billy's growing up with these sort of absentee parents. We saw last issue that all they really do is argue with each other. They don't pay attention to the kids. The father doesn't apparently work. So, of course, that puts Billy and his late sister in a position where they're looking for adults they can trust. That puts him in a position to become friends with Coach Donahue, who looks after them in his own way. He's also selling them drugs in some way, shape, or form. Now, that's not been clarified. It won't be clarified, just to speak ahead a little. But Billy has found that his sister, who's probably his only real refuge, his only consistent friend, and somebody he's there to protect, she dies because she's done these drugs and fallen out of a window. That speaks to the idea that they are living in an environment where these drugs are readily available to the children. And there are bad people out there who have taken his sister's life. He gets put in a position where he's fingered for murder. He's the perfect suspect. He has plenty of motive. He had a smoking gun, but again, ballistics would probably have cleared that. And he's put under protective custody with this coach Donahue. Now through that, Matt becomes his lawyer. Matt becomes somebody that Billy can trust because Matt is looking to protect him. He's trying to keep these things from happening and getting Billy put in jail, to be honest with you. So Billy is now influenced by two adults up to this point, and that is Matt Murdock, his defense attorney, and Coach Donahue, his guardian. Imagine how devastating it is to see Coach Donahue be the one that caused your sister's death, indirectly of course, but he's part of it, and then watch Matt Murdock let the guy off who ended up causing his sister's death. So the two men that killed his sister, one of them is a trusted adult, the other is a bad guy. They're both protected and exonerated by Matt Murdock. Matt Murdock is enemy number one, dude. It's got to put this kid, Billy, in a position where he cannot trust adults. Adults are not looking out for his best interests. That's going to put up an emotional fortress around Billy. That also speaks to why Billy does what he does next, which is set up a gambit where he's going to bring Hogman to him by stating that he watched Marky get killed in the tenement. A, he didn't watch Marky get killed. He's playing a bluff. Billy wasn't there, why would he not have been seen in the art? Unless it was just a complete mismanagement of story potential. But at the same time, Daredevil's looking for Billy to try to explain himself, to try to put the kid on a path that's going to bring him to some sort of redemption or peace of mind down the road. And these two plot points come together on a beautiful page. Think of the page as an upside-down capital T, so column in the middle, horizontal column at the bottom. On the left-hand side is Hogman getting the invitation, shall we say, from Billy to meet him, with the accusation of him killing Marky. On the right-hand side is Daredevil coming to the Okoran house and finding out Billy's gone and he's took a gun with him. I'm going to come back to that gun in just a second, but I want to talk about this page. The upside-down T, the empty space, the middle of it shows the city, and it's in vibrant purple again. Again, emotions running hot. Fear, anger, confusion, all in this one beautiful, vibrant color. And along the bottom is Billy walking very small, smallest thing on the page. And it's Billy walking with the gun, which gives us the scope of what this kid is doing. He's a little guy playing a big person's game. And he's way, way, way out of his depth. 
Let me come back to the gun here, okay? Because this is a major goof. Last issue, Billy took this gun and it was the smoking gun that he was caught with that got him into that position where he was accused of killing Hogman. So the gun was apparently returned to Billy's parents and they put it right back where he found it the first time? I don't know what the chain of evidence would be, but that would still likely be in processing at some point and not released yet. Either that or his father went out and got another gun, which Billy has now taken. They're keeping a loaded gun in a sock drawer, a sock drawer which Billy took it from the first time around. You would think the parents would kick in and say, hey, maybe we should put the gun somewhere else or keep it unloaded. But no, it's still there, which is kind of, it just boggles the mind, okay? It doesn't make sense that the gun would be there, not once again, or not still. But ultimately, Billy's going to do it. Billy's planning on killing Hogman, and the Hogman, conversely, is planning on killing Billy. These two are out to kill each other. And Hogman's associate, Smitty, might have gotten away with killing Billy if the Punisher hadn't shown up. And this badass, brave drug dealer puts the kid in front of him like he's a human shield. You put a kid between you and the Punisher. That's not going to go well, people. I mean, Punisher's in this because his kids aren't with him anymore. And Hogman is once again cast in yellow, which of course is the color of fear. So Punisher shoots him in the leg. Now once again, Daredevil comes swinging in. It comes into confrontation with the Punisher. They're looking face to face and it comes down to this awesome stalemate. Because the Punisher is missing on purpose. He doesn't actually want to kill Daredevil. He just wants to settle up with Hogman. And when he realizes that he's trapped in this conflict, he says, Okay, truce. I'll deal with this later. And the two of them are face to face, guns pointed at each other, and Daredevil's the one that pulls the trigger first. He pulls a Han Solo and he shoots not just first, but he shoots only. It's a solid wound, but it's a wound on Punisher's shoulder. Punisher's not going to bleed to death, Punisher's not going to die, but he is going to end up going back to prison, which is where the Punisher miniseries is going to pick up. Which is kind of interesting because we took the Punisher out of the box by having him escape prison, we had him for this story, we put him right back where we found him at the beginning of the story so the miniseries can proceed. But with that dealt with, we come down to this emotional climax, which is Billy with the gun pointed at Hogman. Would Billy be justified in shooting Hogman, this man who put the drugs on the streets, who, according to Daredevil, tricked a good man into helping him sell it to the kids? Bear in mind, we don't know that Coach Johnny Hugh was ever tricked. But anyway, this man who has taken so much, gotten away with murder, and in front of Billy bragged about it and smiled about it. Hogman has no real path for redemption. This man is is horrible through and through. But Billy is not horrible, and that's the thing, is that this kind of thing would corrupt Billy. And we have Billy sitting here with, ironically, an angel and a devil on his shoulder, and the devil's the one trying to tell him to do the right thing. Punisher is the devil telling him, no, kill, 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 kill the people who would kill you. So Daredevil's ideology and Punisher's ideology are clashing within this little boy. And it's kind of really the saving grace of this whole issue that it does come down to this. This is what it's been about from last issue until now, is Billy O'Corin's soul, essentially. And Daredevil professes, we're going to do this with the law. We can get him for killing Marky. Which, if Billy wasn't there, how are they going to do that? It doesn't make a lot of sense. They'll get him for poisoning Coach Donahue. They have enough that he may not go to jail for Mary Elizabeth's murder, but he's going to jail. But Billy relents. Billy takes the high road and does not kill Hogman. And that's good because Billy would never have washed the blood off his hands. It comes back to what I was talking about earlier in the episode. That when you kill, you can't undo that. It's permanent and it's a permanent stain on your soul. By allowing Hogman to live and putting him through the legal system, Billy has allowed for, however unlikely, Hogman to have a sense of redemption and make right. That may and does never happen, but the idea is bigger than the permanence of death. And that kind of played out in the conflict within Billy O'Corn. 
And that kind of plays out in the conflict with the Punisher and Daredevil. And we get this moment with Matt telling Billy that, hey, the rules don't always work, but most of the time they do and they're all we've got. Which is once again interesting and hypocritical of a man who puts on a devil costume and performs vigilante actions. Because he basically violates the rules and goes against the system all the time. And we see Billy walking away and it's not a happy moment. Justice is served to some extent, but Billy is not satisfied with it. It does not bring his sister back. It doesn't put the secrets that Coach Donahue had back in the box. Billy still has to go on with life, without a sister, without a mentor, and the world is just a little bit more empty for Billy. It's just not a happy ending, and that's the thing, is it won't always be a happy ending. Ultimately, with Daredevil being a street-level hero, this is the kind of thing that he should be dealing with. As much as I love a Stiltman fight, and I do, you know I do, and we have one coming up, the realities that Daredevil would deal with would be the drug addicts and the people that slipped through the system. Hogman was not high on the totem pole. He wasn't the head of a giant cartel. He was a mid-level dealer, which put him just below the radar of the police. That's where Daredevil lives. That's where Daredevil is most effective. And I wish at some point we had a follow-up on Billy O'Corn, but unfortunately we never see the kid again. And then, of course, we have the final scene in which Heather discovers the secrets of Atreus Plastic, which we're going to deal with next issue, so I'm going to leave that to the side here. Let's get into the final verdict for Daredevil number 184. There's a lot of leaps of logic in this issue. For example, Marky's murder being, quote-unquote, witnessed by Billy, when we know he wasn't there. We don't have a bit of art showing him there. It kind of came out of nowhere. So if Hogman was tried and accused and convicted because of Billy's testimony... How do we know that Billy wasn't lying? It just seemed like a bit of sloppy writing that never quite came clear. Likewise, the idea that Coach Donahue was selling to the kids because he was tricked into doing that, there's no scene that expands upon that and says that. For all we know, it was Coach Donahue's idea to do this, and he went to Hogman to get the supplies. But in order to stay to the comics code, you gotta make sure the teachers are still kind of trustworthy. That's the only no prize I can offer on that. Despite some of the rickety narratives, you know, this whole thing is built on a bed of sand. There's still a moment, and that's the Billy O'Corn moment, where he has to decide that everything becomes very, very clear. It comes down to the conflict between the Punisher and Daredevil and their respective ideologies and methods. I mentioned last episode that these two men come from a similar starting point to a very different destination. Both lost their families. Both are kind of inverted because the Punisher is a father without children. Daredevil is a child without a father. And that ideology comes to the forefront in that moment. Now, I wish we'd had a little bit more of that, a slightly more thoughtful moment, a more expanded moment rather than the action beats. But the fact that that moment kept me thinking about this story on and on tells me that there was some meat to the bone here, you know? There was something to be read and said that maybe wasn't said the best and in the most clear way possible, but still came across with enough clarity to say, okay, this was interesting. So this was a very middle-of-the-road issue elevated by a good moment where in which the theme becomes very clear without being outright stated. Far from the worst issue of Daredevil ever, but maybe one of the weaker two issues in this Frank Miller run of Daredevil. But next time, we're going to pick up with Atreus Plastic. We're going to look at a story entitled Guts, which is going to be one of the best stories in this particular run. So we're going from one end of the spectrum to the other. That is in one week, everybody. And until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark.
You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. Hear his name.